0: Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, my name wasn't on the um, on the bulletin due to a mix-up, but I am teaching. So glad for the opportunity to be here with you. And we finished first the book of First Peter last mm-hmm. Sabbath or two Sabbaths ago, and now we're going to continue on into the book of Second Peter. It's three short chapters, so I expect that we will get through this book in about three weeks. So why don't we have a word of prayer and we'll get started with our class. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Bless us as we start a new book of the Bible, the book of 2 Peter. May it be a blessing to us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. Now the book of 2 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter shortly before his death and if you read what Peter says in these chapters especially in chapter 1 he mentions that he is about to put off his tabernacle and to pass away considering that Peter knows that he is about to pass from the scene and that after many years of labor probably at this time cl- close to forty years of labor for the church since the time of christ um, obviously what he is going to say in these three chapters would have special significance it's like when a pastor leaves a church or moves on one of the, the last things that he says he wants it to be important and. What Peter says in these three chapters, as you will see, have what he believes to be special significance to God's people, to Christians during that time, and especially down to the end of time. So that is what we are going to look at, um, starting in 2 Peter chapter 1 now. So I'm going to read um, the first two verses here. And here it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord so the introduction Peter identifies himself as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ and if you look at a lot of the epistles written in the New Testament, Paul and Peter um, will identify themselves saying, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, I'm an apostle. and through Scripture, if you look at the concept of what it means to be a servant of Christ, to be a servant of Jesus Christ, you see, and we've talked about this before, you see that God's last day people are described as the servants of God. So, just because Peter was an apostle of Christ and a servant of Jesus Christ doesn't put him in a category that is high and above and far and away from what God designs for us His people to be. He wants us to be followers of Jesus Christ, just as Peter was, to be servants of Jesus Christ. And notice, he writes to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. So, that's the nice thing about the Christian faith. There isn't a hierarchy of faith. This person because he's an apostle, is really faithful, and then, you know, the, the people that listen to him talk, they're way down here. It's like, no. Those of you, he, those of us that he's writing to, he says, have obtained like precious faith. So it's the same. Um, that means, though, then, that we would have the type of experience that Peter had in his life. So we'll continue on here. So we've obtained like precious faith... Through the righteousness of God and of and our Savior Jesus Christ. So here is the concept of righteousness by faith. So the apostles understood righteousness by faith. It's nothing new. It's actually not that complicated, and yet sometimes people get confused about what righteousness by faith is. Peter is going to explain what righteousness by faith is here in this chapter, in the next few verses. Um, Continuing on, he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice, when we receive grace, it's through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord And that when we receive it, it is multiplied to us. So, grace is not something that we receive as a one-time thing and then we stay in a surface knowledge of God the rest of our lives. It's like we receive grace that is multiplied to us when we have, when we receive knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So how do we receive grace? It's through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. And the more we learn, the more grace is multiplied to us. So grace isn't something that's just a, a a shallow, thin covering over us that once we say, well, I know that Jesus is God and He died for me, that's all the grace we ever receive. Grace is actually multiplied to us beyond that point, and that's what Peter is is teaching us here. Now, in the next few verses, we're going to see what the righteousness of God through faith is, how grace is multiplied to us. This will help us to understand the Christian experience of righteousness by faith that Peter had because he wants us to attain like precious faith. That's what he says in verse 1. So, verse 3, he says, "...according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue." Here again, you see that we receive something through the knowledge of God. So. Clearly, Peter is saying knowing God, having knowledge of him is important. And notice it's it says his divine power has given us what? All things. So, and now is it like the nicest house in town and the most expensive car? It says, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So Through the divine power of God, God is going to give us all things that pertain to life, eternal life, life that matters, and godliness. So through the power and the knowledge of God, we can have all things that are important. And then He tells us what these things are, what all these things are that pertain unto life and godliness, starting in verse 4. So, what are all these things that pertain to life and godliness? Notice what verse 4 says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So now, because God's divine power gives us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, Then we see that through the exceeding great and precious promises of God, we can be partakers of the divine nature. That's a great promise. How many of you want to be partakers of the divine nature? having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, 1 John makes... gives us an idea of what the corruption that is in the world through lust is. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So if you want to know what the lust of the flesh is, those three broad categories really encapsulate anything you can uh, that pertains to to lust. You can Anything that's sinful or of pride is in one of those categories, lust of the flush, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. And all you have to do is <laughs> follow the news and you will see famous athletes and other people who have problems with the lust of the flush, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's not the life we are called to live. <laughs> so, when we are partakers of the divine nature, we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust." So what are these things that pertain to life and godliness? Well, We see that they are great promises that help us to be partakers of the divine nature. What does it mean to be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust? Are there characteristics that help us? to understand what it means to be partakers of the divine nature, to escape the corruption of the world through lust. Well, verses 5 through 7 give us those characteristics, and this is known as Peter's Ladder. Um, Have you ever heard of the term Peter's Ladder before? So, verses 5 through 7 of Second Peter chapter 1 describe Peter's ladder. So, verse 5, it says, "...beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity or love." Okay, (laughs) now notice where Peter starts. What is the first um, attribute that is mentioned in verse 5 that we should add to? It's faith. So the foundation of Christianity is faith. And notice in verse 1, Peter says that he's writing to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Now, what Peter is saying is if you've obtained like precious faith with us or with, with what experience that Peter has had or what the apostles have had, the early believers, when you have like precious faith, you are going to add to that because faith is important, but faith produces fruit. And these next attributes in verses 5 through 7 tell us what is added to faith. So for example, the next thing that is added to faith is virtue. So living a virtuous life, a life that is consistent with right doing, with being faithful, with being a virtuous man. Saying that you have faith, righteousness by faith, and yet living a life that's lacking in virtue doesn't go together. When you have faith, you add virtue to that, and Ellen White actually has an entire chapter in Acts of the Apostles starting on page 529 that talks about this whole book. and. She says um, in this chapter, she says, God has called His people to glory and virtue, and these will be manifest in the lives of all who are truly connected with Him. Having become partakers of the heavenly gift, they are to go on unto perfection, being kept by the power of God through faith. It is the glory of God to give His virtue to His children. So notice, it's when you add to your faith virtue, notice that God is giving you His virtue. Um, so when we, if, and notice, like precious faith through the righteousness of God, so righteousness by faith, you know we use this term righteousness by faith, it's the righteousness of God through faith. So when we have righteousness by faith, it's God's righteousness, which means that it's a perfect righteousness. And if we have His righteousness through faith, it would make sense then when we add to that faith, it would be His virtue that is being added to it. So, it is Christ-like virtue that is being added to faith, so His characteristics. And then, with faith and virtue, the, notice the next thing that is added, knowledge. So for someone to say, well, I, I don't know the Bible. You know, I don't study Daniel and Revelation, I don't study Romans, I don't study the Gospels. All I know is that Jesus died for me and that's good enough for me. According to the Bible, it says when we have faith and virtue, we add to that knowledge. So it is important to study the Word of God. It is important to know what we believe and why we believe it. That's a biblical principle. Certainly we start with faith that God sent Jesus to die for us and we receive that through faith but we add to it virtue and then knowledge. When we study the Bible and we gain knowledge and of course this has been mentioned that grace and peace will be multiplied to us through knowledge. When we gain knowledge in this experience of climbing up Peter's ladder, faith, then virtue, then knowledge, the next thing that comes we see is temperance. And this could be summarized as being the health message, or all of the things that are related to temperance, like not staying up late and eating balanced meals at regular times not defiling our temple with harmful substances like nicotine and alcohol, drugs. Those are pretty obvious things. But when you study the Bible, it's like, oh, my body is the temple of God. I don't put things into my body that God has made because God considers my body to be His temple and to keep it pure and holy. So as we gain knowledge, we gain temperance. And notice, when, when we have temperance, The next thing that is added is patience. And the correlation would be, if you don't have faith, virtue, knowledge, and temperance, you're not going to have patience when the trials of life come. If you are used to eating whenever you feel like it, boy, I'm hungry, I know mealtimes not for three more hours, but I'm going to eat half my meal now, how are you going to have patience? when a trial comes and you're used to just going, I'm going to eat right now. I'm going to get it right now. I want it and I want it now. That's not temperance. Temperance is waiting, having regularity, following the laws of health and, and nature, so to speak. But if you're used to just being impulsive, you're not going to have patience. And of course patience is an important attribute because God's last day people are described as having the patience of the saints, they keep the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. So in this experience of climbing the ladder, patience is important, and in order to have patience we need to have faith, virtue, knowledge, and temperance. And adding to patience comes godliness. All of these things together, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, together as a package would fit the picture of godliness, being like Christ. And when we are like Christ, when we have godliness, we add to that brotherly kindness. And again, I've talked about this in our classes. Um, Brotherly kindness should especially pertain to how we relate to our family members at home and how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ at church. So if we're having a hard time having feelings of charity and brotherly kindness to our brothers and sisters at church, um, there may be a rung of the ladder missing below this point. And I've said this before as well. if our biggest enemies are at church, something's wrong with our Christian experience. We shouldn't have any enemies at church. We should all have brotherly kindness and charity towards one another. So, godliness Brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, you have charity, which is love. All of those things together make up what is called Peter's ladder. And this is these attributes of faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These attributes here in First Peter 2, or First Second Peter, Peter one, sorry, these attributes are the attributes that are seen in people who have the experience of righteousness by faith. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. All of those go together in the experience of righteousness by faith, and Peter could write about this because he had this experience at this point in his life, and he's writing to those who have obtained like precious faith, and he's calling upon all of us to have this experience of being partakers of the divine nature. So when you have righteousness by faith, you are partakers of the divine nature, you've escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and you have these attributes. And again, I'm going to read a comment or two from Ellen White about this experience of climbing the ladder. So Ellen White says, this is from Acts of the Apostles, starting at page 529, she says, speaking of this ladder, she says, these words are full of instruction and strike the keynote of victory. The apostle pre- presents before the believers the ladder of Christian progress, every step of which represents advancement in the knowledge of God, and in the climbing of which there is to be no standstill. Then she mentions all those attributes, starting with faith, ending with charity. And she says, these are the rounds of the ladder. We are saved by climbing round after round, mounting step after step to the height of Christ's ideal for us. Thus he has made unto us one wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then she goes on to say in the same chapter, none need fail of attaining in his sphere the perfection of Christian character. By the sacrifice of Christ, provision has been made for the believer to receive all things that pertain to life and godliness. God calls upon us to reach the standard of perfection and places before us the example of Christ's character. In his humanity, perfected by a life of constant resistance of evil, the Savior showed that through cooperation with divinity, human beings may in this life obtain to perfection of character. This is God's assurance to us that we, too, may obtain complete victory." So, and again, that chapter is describing the—Ellen White is basically picking highlights from the book of 2 Peter. And so, what we see here is that these attributes in this ladder of Peter, verses 5 through 7, are the attributes that all Christians are going to climb each rung of the ladder as they reach the pattern that God has set forth for each one of us. And notice what verse 8 says in 2 Peter 1, it says, For if these things be in you, what things? Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly, kindness, and charity. If these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, when we have these attributes, we will not be barren or unfruitful. We will have fruit to give to God. And, and again, this is Peter's last exhortation to the Christian church shortly before his death. So, he is sharing things that he thinks are of utmost importance to the Christian faith. And in verse 9, he says, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, this is interesting. Peter says, if you lack these things, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, patience godliness, brotherly kindness and charity. He says that you are blind and you've forgotten that you were purged from your old sins or you've forgotten that you received forgiveness that you were cleansed from all unrighteousness. Can you think of another place in scripture where God's people or professed people are described as being blind? Absolutely. Laodicea. Laodicea is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So what is one of Laodicea's problems? Laodicea doesn't think it's necessary to add to faith a virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, Godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. It's like, well, I have righteousness by faith. If I have righteousness by faith, I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. Why would I need to add anything to that? I don't need to be a virtuous person or to have patience or to eat temperately or to, to have brotherly love to my brothers and sisters. Sure, that's a nice thing to do, but it doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. I'm already covered with the righteousness of Christ. And... Yet Peter is saying, if you lack these things, you're blind. Laodicea is described as being blind and naked, and if they're naked, they're clearly not covered with the righteousness of Christ. So 2 Peter makes it pretty clear that these elements on Peter's letter, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity or love are crucial in the experience of being clothed with the righteousness of Christ and having spiritual eyesight to discern what is true and what is false. He that lacketh these things, in verse 9, is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now that not that interesting? It's like, if you lack these things, you've forgotten that you were purged or cleansed from your old life of sin, and it's like, oh, well, I have the righteousness of Christ, so I guess it's okay if I'm still sinning. You've forgotten that you had actually been cleansed from sin and that God had given you the victory and now you're blind to your true condition and that is exactly what is wrong with Laodicea and, you know, all you have to do is is go around to various places in the Adventist church and you will hear these very things said basically justifying and excusing a life of sin. And what those people are unknowingly are doing, they are showing that they are blind to their true condition. So let's, let's stick with what the Bible says and, and be faithful to what Scripture says about the experience that God wants us to have. Now notice what verse 10 says, wherefore the rather brethren, so this is a summary statement of what Peter has said so so far, he says, wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things ye shall never fall. Notice this, if ye do what things? If you add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, if you do these things, if you give diligence to do these things, notice what it says, you shall never fall. Reminds me of Jude 24, which says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his throne with exceeding joy. Now, notice it is God who works in us that helps us to do these things, but we have to give diligence to the doing of this. We, our part is daily surrendered to the Lord because, humanly speaking, there's times when we don't feel like being temperate. There's times when we don't feel like having patience, there's times we don't feel like having brotherly kindness to that most annoying person at church who always gets on our nerves with certain things they say, and they're come on, you know, God, you know, that one person, if it just wasn't for them, I'd be a good Christian. Other than that, I'm good, right? It takes surrender to the Lord to be able to have this experience, and so Peter says, give diligence to make your calling and election. Sure, diligently every day we surrender our human will to that of God's, saying, Lord, work out your life through me because I don't feel like it today. I don't feel like adding virtue to my faith today because that one person, I I just don't feel like being virtuous to them, I feel like giving them the cold shoulder today. And we've all had that temptation, we've, all, we've probably all fallen into that temptation at one point or another in our lives, but Peter is saying, if we give diligence to make our calling and election sure, if we do these things, we will never fall. So what Scripture is saying is, is that it is not inevitable that you have to sin. It's not inevitable. If you do these things, you shall never fall. And it's interesting, as I've read Ellen White throughout the years, um, 2 Peter 1, verse 10, is a frequent verse that she quotes in her writings. So, um, through the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, Ellen White also placed um, high value on the message of 2 Peter 1, and especially verse 10, that if you give diligence to make your calling and election sure, and notice, Our calling and our election, that has to do with our salvation. We're not talking about negotiable issues here. We're talking about issues that relate to salvation, our calling and our election. Many are called, few are chosen. What is our calling? It's to have, like precious faith, the righteousness of God through faith, to add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness. And if we give diligence to these things, we will make our calling a luxury and we will never fall. And it is God who is able to keep us from falling. I'm thankful for that promise. And notice again, this is Peter's last message of exhortation to the Christian church before his death. So he is saying what he thinks is of utmost importance. Continuing on here in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he says, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So these elements of being partakers of the divine nature that we've described, starting with faith, ending with love, are the elements that are required to receive an entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, this is a salvational issue. And. He continues in verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. So Peter's saying, look, even if you know this, I am not going to be negligent to remind you of what pertains to your salvation. Because it's so easy. You know, in the book of Hebrews, Paul says, how shall we escape If we neglect so great a salvation, how often do we think about the themes of salvation? Is it just on Sabbath morning when we come to Sabbath school and church? Is that when we think about salvation and how wonderful it is? Or is it part and parcel of our life every day in our devotions with God in the morning and the evening and throughout the day? We are thinking of the great salvation that has been given to us, and we give diligence to these things. And so Peter says, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. It's interesting, this phrase, present truth. Is a phrase that Adventists have liked to use. Um, James White and Joseph Bates first coined this term back shortly after 1844. And um, of course, present truth relates to truth that is especially important for our time. And the present truth for us today, of course, we understand to be the three angels' messages, which includes the everlasting gospel, which is the righteousness of God through faith, and we see that God's last day people have the patience of the saints, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, what we are studying in Second Peter is present truth for our day. Now, continuing on, now you can see Peter's going to give a few more words of exhortation of things he believes are important leading up to uh, as he's about to pass off the scene. Starting in verse 13 he says, Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me." So, here Peter's saying, look, I'm about to die, I'm about to put off my tabernacle or my body, Um, I'm going to die and pass off the scene. So as long as I am alive, I am going to stir these things up and I'm going to share this message with you because my time here on this earth is short and in verse 15 he says moreover I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So, Peter is putting into writing what he has said before so that the Christian believers will not forget what the message of salvation is, that we are to be partakers of the divine nature, that we are to add to faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness charity, and that if we give diligence to make our calling and election sure we will never fall and we will have an entrance into the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ. Peter does not want the church to forget that. Even though he's about to pass off the scene and so he's saying, don't forget this, don't forget this, don't forget this. Even though I'm about to pass from the scene, you can still be faithful. You don't need to rely on me. I'm a human being and through the power of God you can be partakers of the divine nature. And then starting in verse 16. He, he speaks to His experience and to the experience that we should have as God's people. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Amen? We have not followed cunningly devised fables. If we follow every word of, uh, of the Word of God, we're not following cunningly devised fables. And if you want to know what cunningly devised fables are, um, go to a classroom that teaches that you can pick and choose with the Word of God, which part of the Word of God is true and which part isn't, and that you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's a cunningly devised fable, and maybe not so cunning, but anyway. We have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now, now Peter is saying, look, I was an eyewitness. I know what I'm talking about. I was with Jesus here on this earth for three and a half years. I was an eyewitness. And he says exactly what he saw. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. What's Peter talking about there? Peter's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah come down from heaven, and they saw Jesus in a glorified state receive encouragement before He went through His last experience through Gethsemane and the cross. And Peter's saying, look, I was an eyewitness of that majesty. So what I'm sharing with you is not a cunningly devised fable. I know from personal experience that what I'm telling you is true take my word for it. I was there. I saw it f- with my own eyes. I know how Christ lived here on this earth. I know the attributes of, of Christ, and I know that through my own experience that I've been a partaker of the divine nature. I've added to my faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, to patience godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness charity, and this is not a cunningly devised fable. If you do these things, you will never fall. I know from personal experience, I had an experience of unfaithfulness, but now God has helped me to be a partaker of the divine nature. So we have not followed cunningly devised fables. But notice what he says in verse 19, beyond his personal experience of being an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Christ, notice what verse 19 says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Do you, get, do you get what Peters saying here? Peter is saying that the prophecy in Scripture is more sure than my word saying that I was an eyewitness of the majesty of God. So. Sure, you can take my word that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but the more sure word that helps us to know that we have not followed cunningly devised fables is the more sure word of prophecy. That's why we as Seventh-day Adventists study Daniel and Revelation, because it is those prophecies that help us to understand that we haven't followed cunningly devised fables and that the message that we teach is true. We don't follow cunningly devised fables. We have a more sure word of prophecy. You study the book of Daniel, Jesus came right on time. In Mark 1, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he was baptized by John the Baptist. Three and a half years later, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son. That's in John 17. And then he was crucified right in the midst of the week, just as Daniel had prophesied. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And sure enough, right on time, Jesus went from the holy place to the most holy place on October 22, 1844, as God raised up His remnant people who would keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We have a more sure word of prophecy. People can try to throw stones and cast doubt on the prophetic messages, it's no wonder that they do, because Satan knows that the more sure word of prophecy will ground people the faith of God in these last days. So we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So the prophetic word is like a light that shines in a dark place. And this may not be the perfect application of Revelation 18, but we do know that there's coming a time when an angel will come down from heaven having great power, and the earth will be lightened with its glory. That's going to be the final prophetic message to this world before Jesus comes, and it's going to be a light that shines in a dark place in a way that's never been seen before. So verse 20 says, Knowing this first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." Now, I have a few minutes, so I have to say something about prophecy being of, no prophecy being of any private interpretation. There's a lot of um, Seventh-day Adventists that like to give private interpretation to Scripture, and it's It's their own new interpretation that's never been heard before, and it doesn't square with anything else that's ever been understood about Scripture. So, for example, Revelation 10, verse 6 makes it clear that there will be time no longer. It's clear after 1844, no more prophetic time. What do you like to say, oh, the 1260, the 1290, and the 1335 from the book of Daniel can be reapplied at the end of the the world as literal days, even though they've already had a day for a year fulfillment. That's a private interpretation. There are people out there that are saying that the judgment of the living began on 9-11. That's a private interpretation. We're told that no one knows when the judgment of the living will begin. Um, There's people out there that are even saying things that um, the daily in the book of Daniel is a salvational issue. Ellen White says it's not a testing point, things like that. some of you may how many of you got in the mail that pamphlet about the National Sunday Law revisited? Did any of you get that in the mail? So there's this Adventist that's so-called Adventist named Lawrence Wilson who's sending out this pamphlet basically saying that Ellen White doesn't know what she's talking about and that prophecy can be reapplied in the future. And many Adventists are getting this pamphlet and it's stirring up interest in the Sunday law issue, but it's filled with errors. Once again, private interpretation of prophecy. We have a more sure word of prophecy so that we don't need to be deceived when people come along having some great new idea that goes against what Scripture has always taught. And you know, I have a burden for Adamist that a lot of times Adonis, they'll go hear a speaker or read a magazine where it talks about end time events and they get all excited and then they get into all this speculative the Jesuits are behind every stone kind of idea and the message of righteousness by faith which Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1 being partakers of the divine nature understanding the more sure word of prophecy giving diligence to make our calling and election sure, those things end up being ignored. And when it comes to the matters of the heart, of having surrender, of being surrendered to the Lord so that we can add to our faith virtue, so we can be virtuous people. so so that we can add knowledge to their faith and virtue, so that we can understand Scripture, so that we can have temperance, so that we can live what we preach, so that we can practice what we preach, so that we can have patience and be like Christ, to have brotherly kindness, charity and love, all of these things. Those things are oftentimes ignored, and the speculative, exciting, hey, the judgment began or the judgment of the living began on September 11, those kind of messages stir up all this excitement and in the meantime the preparation of the heart is ignored and Jesus still waits for His people. Because we know, Scripture makes it clear in 2 Peter 3 that we can actually hasten the coming of the Lord. That's one of the last things Peter tells us in chapter 3, is we can hasten the coming of Christ. and. Christ's Object Lessons page, says in page 69 that when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to claim them as His own. So those are the elements that we need to be focusing in upon, and there are speculative ideas out there, but remember, many of these things, if not most or all of them, are private interpretations. Prophecy that we understand is of no private interpretation. Danny had your hand up. says that private interpretation is uh, interpreting, interpreting prophecy without the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Bible. Sure. So what happens is In words, private interpretation, interpretation is yeah, to read the Bible and to read prophecy mm-hmm. by yourself without the, right. of the Holy Sure. Bible. And that's the obvious implication is that that prophecy that is true is, un, is from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Private interpretation is a human explanation that doesn't fit with what Scripture teaches. And so we want to make sure that we are following the moving of the Holy Ghost in understanding what the Word of God teaches. And um, when we get to chapter 2 next week, chapter 2 talks about a lot of heresy and error that has come into the Christian church by that time, and we will get into that next week. But may we be faithful and make our calling and election sure. Thank you, everyone.